if it's not to come out publicly, if you haven't come out to anyone before, find someone that you trust, talk to them. Once you start to see the positivity, you know, feedback to you, it becomes a lot easier to uh, to talk about these issues. And welcome to episode 27 of the Outfield Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lichtenstadter, and we are going to continue the baseball theme of this show. For the first 24 episodes, I had nobody in baseball on the show, and now I've had three in a row. I'm making up for lost time. And no offense to Nick Stellini, who's great, and Brian Ruby, who's become a good friend. Love talking to those guys, but I think I'm talking to the one I've wanted to talk to the most since the amazing piece June Lee wrote in September. Kieran Lovegrove, I am extremely excited to have you on. How are you? Thank you. I am extremely flattered uh, that you want to speak to me so badly. Uh, Well, that makes me very happy. I think it is my obligation to interview as many out bisexual people in sports as humanly possible. Yeah, I mean that is that is certainly a a calling that seems to match up. It is. Every time I people come out and it's awesome, and this has been an amazing year for them. We will talk about that more as the show goes along. And this is no offense to anybody who's come out. There have been some amazing stories, amazing people. But you will understand, I think everybody listening to this, that if it's a bisexual guy, I'm going to interview that person. It's just going to have to happen. Well, uh, you've, you've picked one with certainly some interesting ideas on, on human sexuality. So if we do want to get that I can't wait that to round. hear that because yeah. I've listened to some podcasts you've done. <laughs> we ended up uh, hearing about bonobos, I think it was. Oh, yeah. Bonobos will be coming up. Um, that one's always very fun to talk about because I think when you present the idea of human sexuality with this kind of minor difference of why, um, kind of an explanation as to why we are the way we are, uh, certain people kind of sit back and go, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And all of a sudden, the um, this ridiculous heteronormative dichotomy that we have where, you know, a ridiculous amount of the population believes that the natural way is to be completely uh, heterosexual and monogamous. Uh, it just doesn't seem to match up with my idea of evolution and sexuality as a means of bonding and cooperation. Well, I'm okay with bonobos because I've gone on random tangents on many of the podcasts I've done about things that have nothing to do with anything. So th- this will be I mean, this has something to do with something. It's going to be Oh, it all, it all has something to do with something, right? I mean, they're all interconnected by some degree. Mm, maybe not here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at drawing connections, so we'll see where we get to. Let's, let's see where we get to. I first have to ask, because this has been a very interesting time in your life, obviously. How are you doing now that you've looked back on all that you've done, uh, not just with the stories that have been written about not just your coming out, but your experiences in minor league baseball and then seeing what happened in the playoffs. And now, as we head to a pretty pivotal time in the sport, uh, how do you feel about everything that's happened with you in the last couple months? Oh, good question. I feel a lot of different things. It really varies day to day. Um, the last few days have been very manic. Uh, just had a lot of really kind of unconstrained energy, and it's it's you know, I've at least gotten to the point where I can recognize when I'm starting to go a little manic or when I'm starting to get a little depressed. And so I can kind of regulate myself. Um, I'm working harder in an off season than I've ever worked, um, you know, coaching and then also doing advocacy stuff and reaching out and talking to players. And I just feel like there's so much more work to be done. 
and I just I'm kind of chomping at the bit to get out in front of people and speak and um, to hopefully get some of this moving even quicker. And I think I need to temper that back a little bit because there's there's so many different factors at play um, going into at least the the baseball advocacy side of it that it's really taken up a huge portion of my thinking power. And I think as people realize when you kind of get into advocacy, whatever form of it it is, you want to move really quickly and then you realize the world doesn't want to move quickly at all and you have to temper it. And it takes a while to temper that, uh, that excitement and that manic energy, as you said. And the, fir- the minute you learn it, you, you become a better advocate once you learn that the people you're trying to advocate change with or change for, they don't want to move very fast. Yeah, and like, I guess frustratingly, knowing that the MLB could snap their fingers and change policies across the board that would overwhelmingly benefit minor league players and in turn benefit their own systems, um, knowing that that really could happen with the snap of a finger is frustrating because that's where you know, all right, this is one thing that could move very quickly and be resolved almost instantaneously. And yet there is an active choice not to do that on the part of the owners or, um, well, really on the part of the owners of the central office. And that is unfortunately a very big part of sports. And that's a part of advocating for the community, too. <laughs> when you realize these people don't really, either they don't want to, if you're very cynical, or they don't know how to. But we'll get to all of that as we go along. There are so many things we're going to get to with you. I mean, we could probably do a podcast for six hours. There's so much to talk about. But I have to start with something I haven't seen talked about all that much in the stories I've read when uh, you came out and also getting ready for this show. I want to learn about your, your journey from South Africa to baseball, because that's not something talked about very often, and it's a unique path that you've walked, and I want to hear more about it. You know, it's really funny. Early in my baseball career, that is um, all anyone ever wanted to hear about. And uh, as I went along more and more, uh, I think people were still interested in South Africa and when a player like Gift was the first African-born player to make the big leagues, that was incredible to, to see that happen. And um, But my story is, is not all that interesting, I'd say. I To give a little background, my dad is the actual one who was born in Africa. He was born in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, um, was in South Africa, and then came to the States in the 80s and met my mom. Also during that time, he saw the Dodgers win the 1988 World Series. So he fell in love with baseball in the late 80s. Um, His green card was expiring. And so he and my mom flew back to South Africa together and had my sister and I in 91 and 94 respectively. I stayed there until 99 when things were uh, pretty unstable in the country. And my dad decided it would be better because my sister, my mom and I were all American citizens to send us out to live with my uh, maternal grandmother in LA. And he came out to join us a few months later. During that time when I was living in LA, I actually got to see my first Major League Baseball game. Um, I got to go to Dodger Stadium. I got to walk out on the field with Paul LaDuca and stand there for the national anthem at home plate. And I think that's the moment. I, I, I would assume most baseball players have a moment where the game became everything to them. I think mine started very, very early with standing in Dodger Stadium, you know, 
hearing the national anthem, standing in that crowd, I, I think it was one of my first couple of years in the in the United States, and I just got to experience this really, really incredible moment. Uh, I don't think about Paula Duca. I only think about the 2006 Mets. Forgive me. <laughs> I think. Well, I mean, I I loved him as a Dodger. Um, that I was think back. My memories of baseball. This was all prior to the Mets. The two minutes of happiness via the New York Mets, or the ninety-eight thousand minutes of utter torture. Mm. It's only going to get worse if they, um, if what I saw rumor-wise about the GM signing. It's is true. the Mets. It can always get worse. This is why yeah. I say rock bottom is a myth, folks. It doesn't exist. It always can get worse. That's my uh, sports motto in life because all of the teams I follow can get worse. But that's neither here nor there. I just no, I mean, seeing the seeing the destruction that the Epler um, front office left in with the Anaheim or with the Angels, um, I can't imagine why anyone would want to sign him to be a GM of a major league ball club. Again, I really I can't. I, I've I seen can't some things with the Mets, Kieran. I, I don't know. Okay, well, not, let's not dunk on the Mets all the time. <laughs> we have other things to talk about. I completely understand, and I was going to mention that at some point later in the show. It's very convenient, but let's I just saw it earlier, the, and it, it frustrated me. Oh, I understand. Listen, these, these industries are insular, and I, I complain about this with hockey all the time, and baseball's no better. It's, these industries are insular. You hire people you already know that have the connections, and you don't take a chance to hire people new. That's just how it works. I wish I would be angrier at it than I am, but I can't be. At this point, you're almost numb. Yeah, it's definitely. It's numbness. It's numbness and resignation and also um, pain to laughter. <laughs> but anyway, back to you and your baseball journey. Uh, Paul Aduka uh, made me think about the Mets, and now here we are. But, um, I mean, your love for baseball, describe that. Because for somebody who's gone through the experiences you have, where your love for baseball, and we're going to talk about this later, has probably changed and your relationship with the sport has changed but deep down that childhood love for the sport hasn't really gone away so how do you contextualize your younger self and that you know primal love for the sport to where you are now when that relationship's a little bit more complicated I actually I think I made the relationship more complicated than it ever had to be during the early part of my professional career um because I all of a sudden looked at baseball differently. I looked at it as a job. I looked at it as a profession and I looked at it um, as a business. And so I went into it with this chip on my shoulder that I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to, you know, to do business. And I think it left a sour taste in a lot of teammates and uh, coaching staff and personnel's mouth because I really wasn't a very pleasant person, I'd imagine. Um, but, you know, over the last few years, and especially dealing with injuries and everything off the field, and then finally coming back around to, you know, post-pandemic, uh, having the ability to play again, rekindled that really primal love, which is, I just like the sport. I love the nuance of it. I love the skill that it takes. I love the fact that it is always varied and different and um and it's one of the only sports where the defense holds the ball there's something about that that i really like it, it just fascinates me and, and especially getting back in or getting into coaching now for the first time and working with 14 to 17 18 year olds and trying to pass along the information that i've gained from a lot of 
really, really knowledgeable baseball players and coaches throughout my career. Um, I'm just getting back to finding joy in the really little things. And I'm telling you, the game is so much more fun when you watch it with the understanding that those little things really can make a difference each and every time they happen. A bunt here, you know, a good 1-1 pitch there. All these little tiny things have started to really um, engage me more. And I just want to see the game be put into a better position. I really do. I want to see the game be an international powerhouse of sport because I think it has the ability to do that. It's very interesting how you say that. You go through the relationship where you start as a child, you love it, it's this hobby, it becomes your life, then you get into it and your opinion of it changes, and then you come back around with whatever happens in life, and we're going to get to some of your experiences in the sport in a second, and now you find your, your love for it again, and even through all of the problems that this sport has and the issues that it has, and it has numerous issues, you just want to see it get better. And I, I see that in many ways, that's a journey a lot of out people in sports who have complex relationships with the institutions and in some ways the games themselves. I think that's something that many of those people, and you included, end up coming around to. You start with the love. You go through the very complex time where you start to understand that what you thought as a child is, of the sport is definitely not true. But then there's some way to tap into that love again and wanting to make it better in spite of the challenges that you face and it's a it's a much more common arc and something that I've I've learned in doing these shows and and learning about ad athletes and also in your case it's just trying to advocate to make the sport better on a basic level and yeah I mean that's really what it comes down to right is is if you love something you want it to be in a state of improvement you want it to be healthy and you want it to be uh, taking care of those involved and right now we're certainly not at that point. We definitely need to make some improvements, but there is enough passion for the game among players and personnel that I always feel that it will be protected. I, I'm glad you have the optimism because there are times when I, I think about it with all sports and you go those days where you read the stories and you see what's happening and you go, boy, are, are they really going to do this? And I'm glad that people have that optimism because there are times when the cynic in me, when it comes to every sport, not just baseball, uh, it comes out and you're just like, they, they don't want to. But then you, you think back, like there are people in this sport that desperately wanted to improve and they're going to win. They have to win. Yeah, I think, well, I think it provides you with just more drive when you have a positive passion for the game. When you have a selfish, you know, uh, investment into the game, I don't feel like you can really grind through everything you have to do to make it better. Because making it better is not an overnight thing. What Absolutely I've noticed, what, what I've really noticed in my career is that the, the game of baseball over the last 10 years is really being driven by the youth. It is becoming um, slightly, you know, faster paced, a little bit more expressive, um, it, it is becoming 25 individuals playing as a team as opposed to just you play for the name on the front. And while I always respected the idea of, you know, you play for the name on the front, not the back, these are still human beings that have very complex lives. It, they have joys and pains and, and, you know, ups and downs. And 
I think getting away from that human element of the game really takes the the spark of joy out of it. And so for me, I really encourage players to play with passion and to play with a joy for the game because it shows in the way that they play. Absolutely. And there are times when baseball in particular gets charged with a lot. The human element is no longer there. And, well, we could get to that later. I have to now start to talk about your sexuality, which is, of course, the main reason why you're here, although we will talk about your advocacy work to make minor league baseball a better place. But considering your own journey and your sexuality, I think you said you started to understand it, if I remember past interview correctly, you said like 13, 14. Do I have that right? 12. 12? Yeah. Okay. Close enough. They all blend together. Uh, <laughs> it's just least, those least, years, yeah. They, they all do school. blend together. And what was that journey like in understanding your sexuality? Because when you're that young and you live in the society that we live in, particularly when you're like us and you're bisexual and these, and these things are told to you, well, you can't, certainly you can only like one thing. Now we know that, well, more people understand that sexuality for humans is very complex and hard to put in a box. But for you, what was that journey like? Well, I, even before I was 12, I've always just had, uh, from the time I was a kid, just an intense curiosity for pretty much everything. Um, and as I got to around puberty and, and, you know, sexuality and hormones started to rush, my curiosity obviously turned towards uh, sex and sexuality. And I, I think I'd maybe... I understood what it was, and I was I was certainly not sheltered. I was <clears throat> I was a child of the internet, so from a very early age, I was exposed to some pretty explicit things. Um, <laughs> this was prior to a lot of protections being on the internet. That we're talking about, uh, like the mid two thousands, early two thousands, um, when the internet was a wild place. Is it still not wild now? It's far more protected than it used to be. Okay, I'll far give you that. Far more protected. Um, so at a young age, I was exposed to some really explicit things and, and I don't think my, I don't think I processed them super well when I was young, um, but it always, it, it always piqued my curiosity and going through my middle school years, um, you know, 12 to 13, um, I just kind of came to the understanding that, well, I clearly have an attraction to uh, women or girls, I guess, 12. Um, but I always knew that it wasn't 100%. It never could have been. Um, it never felt like it was. And I just kind of accepted that. I said, well, you're not just into girls. You're not really. Like, I, now that I'm older, I realize I don't care much for anybody's physical form. Um, it just, if you don't have anything inside your head, it doesn't appeal to me no matter what. Uh, which I guess, if we really want to continue labeling and going down the branches, it's, you know, pansexual, demisexual, whatever you want to call it, sapiosexual. Um, there's so many different kind of facets and uh, sides to sexuality that it, I find it almost impossible to label anything really well. So yeah, as I, as I got older, I kind of came to the understanding that it was the individual that I was interested in. 
if an individual use, person. I, I always use the bisexual label as shorthand. Like, whatever you define it as, as I've said it's, before, is whatever you want it to be. Yeah, it's kind of... comfortable with it, I don't particularly... No one should care. As long it's as the you're more comfortable like, with your own definition. Digestible version for the masses. Yes. Essentially. Um, I like... I li I like once you get to a point where you feel like you have to explain it to people who are going to be visibly confused, like, okay, I like men and women, thank you. And it ends the, like, it ends the awkward part of the discussion where it feels like yeah. you have to explain yourself. And you really shouldn't have to. I, I, think, I think Shit's Creek did it perfectly. Um, of course it did. Where Dan Levy said, I like the wine, not the label. There it is. That's exactly what it is to me. I just like whatever's inside of somebody. Um, if they are a kind, intelligent conversationalist, I usually find some attraction to them. Um, so, it, you know, I, I talk about sexuality a lot, but I see it as a means to cooperative bonding, really. I wish more people saw it that way. Yeah. But obviously not. Sadly, yeah, I don't think it'll be too long until people start to change their ideas. I mean, we've already seen in a very short period of time, I'd say even in my, we'll talk, you know, just in a 10-year span, um, the understanding of the LGBTQ community has gone up tremendously. Well, it came uh, from the center of the Earth to slightly below the Earth's crust, so I guess yeah. I mean, it is progress. Uh, but I have to ask now about the understanding of your sexuality and also vis-a-vis playing baseball because for so many people there is the dichotomy of being involved in sports and you grew up in the same time I did you're you're younger than me and you grow up in a time when sports are a certain thing and you can't possibly be thinking that your own sexuality is going to be compatible with being involved in sports because it was for men and all of these things that we don't need to get into because you know it once you hear it did you yeah. fall into any of those uh, doubts in your head as you start to fully understand your own sexuality, which you came to it before I did, but did you also fall into the same sort of, I don't want to say trap is the right word, but the same sort of things where you felt like, I, I don't feel right here, or there's something, there's something missing? Yeah, I've, I've talked about how much I used to mask before. Um... You know, because I am pretty, you know, demonstrative in the way that I speak. I use my hands a lot. I uh, tend to be a little more feminine in my actions and movements. Um, and so I felt like I had to, you know, mask as mask. You know, mask is masculine. And it felt so uncomfortable for me to try and do that, to try and, like, you know, quote, unquote, bro out with the guys just wasn't something that I was good at. And I kept trying to fit in with them instead of trying to be myself and see where I fit in. Um, and so, you know, coming to the, the understanding of my sexuality, which when I finally, you know, realized, all right, this is who I am. I was, I'd come to the understanding at 12. I only really accepted it and decided to be openly bi when I was 22, 23, maybe. Um, is when I started to like, okay, this is how I am and I'm comfortable with it. I'm comfortable with people knowing. And that came from a lot, a lot of very positive conversations with friends and, um, the, the positive reinforcement, the positive feedback loop that I got from them 
really encouraged me to continue on. And then in the 2018 season, uh, I had two teammates that I was living with that I was very close with. I came out to them and same thing. I just had a very positive interaction with that as we were sitting on the floor of a furnitureless apartment in Virginia. Like, haven't we all been there before? No, haven't we all? But, um, and then when I got to 2019 and I had a team that I really, really enjoyed being with when I was with the Giants, that's where I decided, all right, if it comes up in conversation, it's not something that I like to broach, but conversations come up quite a bit during bus rides or bullpens. And this one happened to be a bus ride where um, I think one of the players was just curious, you know, hey, how do you identify? Because you don't seem like you're fully straight. And it was asked with the best intentions. I'll make that clear. And I just kind of told them, yeah, you know, I'm bisexual. And while I expected kind of the odd glance, everyone was just like, oh, that's cool. Okay, cool. And it was just positive. And we went right back to being a team. It didn't feel like it had any negative impact. It didn't feel like it changed any dynamic. Guys were still comfortable joking with me. Um, you know, and that's that's what a baseball clubhouse is. It's really knowing your teammates on a very, very personal level because they do become your family. And then being comfortable enough to live alongside them as they are, respect them as a human being, but still be able to be a baseball team, to be able to rib each other, to be able to make jokes, to be able to have some levity in the clubhouse at times. And I don't think that particular element in baseball clubhouses is as common and as accepted as probably we'd like, because I do remember you here, uh, you saying it at one point that, and tell me if I'm getting the story wrong, that there was some pride night many years ago and a teammate was saying things that were quite. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll have, I'll happily repeat that story because I, I find it to be so grotesque. Um, yeah, well, we were in. I mean, it, 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 it sadly, as as much as I'd like to say these stories are are not common, uh, they are. But it won't be as grotesque as some of the things I've heard in other sports. So. Yeah, I guess I guess that's you know I, I know for a fact that there are significantly take, take worse a things. Take shot if you've listened to this podcast for long enough to know I'm about the sport is and what I'm about to say as as bad as it is in baseball could be worse. It could be hockey. Uh, I wouldn't even want to imagine, but essentially we, we don't had a, want to, but maybe we'll talk about that after we're done recording. There was a, there was an advertisement for a pride night when we were playing, we were visiting Harrisburg and while sitting in the bullpen, one of the um, teammates that I had who granted like religious fundamentalists from, you know, the, the North and small town, um, he basically said if there was a pride night and they ever did a pride jersey, that he would take that jersey into the manager's office, put it on the desk and say, I'm not fucking playing. And it just. And this was before I was out publicly, so they didn't know. And I kind of just had to bite my tongue and I asked the question of like, well, why? And he says, well, it's something I don't agree with. I think it's, you know, an abomination and a sin. And I had to remind him that. You know, Faith and Family Night for us was going to be, I think, the following week, funny enough. And I said, you know, I have my issues with, like, religious extremists, but you don't see me protesting a Faith and Family Night. It's, it's absurd to do so. It's absurd to hate someone else so much that you can't participate in a child's game. I, the whole concept to me seemed so absurd. And... Um, 
Yeah, I just, I could never quite reconcile the idea that there were certain people who, I mean, to put it bluntly, would rather see me dead than breathing. It's, it's a hard thing to come to grips with. And it's something that you don't understand until you get into the world and you realize, no, these people are out there and they'll let you know that they're out there. And a lot of them end up being involved in sports. Yeah, and I just, you know, I, I just can't make sense of it. I can't make sense of um, being indoctrinated to believe that people slightly different than you. I mean, really, it's a slight difference. Um, that people that are slightly different than you deserve your hatred and disgust. To me, that's just the vile actions of, of those who don't actually understand what compassionate love is, despite preaching it. Well, life is full of contradictions, and those people tend to, uh, well, or life is full of projection, and those people like to project. That's but, probably a better way to put it. It's, it is definitely a much better way to put it, and projection is a, is a word I've used a lot lately. I think we're all using it a lot more because we understand what projection is now in, in many ways. Uh, so in your experiences, well before you're out, it's just experiencing baseball clubhouses, understanding your own sexuality and knowing that it's different, but not being out yet and not being fully able to accept it internally. Did you feel uncomfortable in clubhouses? I mean, I know you say, of course, that you were acting as something you clearly weren't, and that is always terrible and never comfortable. But did you, did, was it like openly hostile or was it just one of those like subtle things that made you feel after accumulation of incidents that said like, I don't feel right here? I didn't actually ever feel like the, at least the clubhouses I, w I, I was in, I never felt that there was open hostility towards uh, any real group. If it was done, it was pretty subtle or it was a comment here or there. Or it was a epithet or a slur here or there. Um, now, I will say 95% of that has disappeared. It, in a very short period of time, a lot of that has disappeared from clubhouses. Um, and I think this new generation of ball player is just plain and simple, more open and understanding to different people. That's just what it feels like to me. Um, and obviously I have a you know, kind of small view of, of what the entire breadth of professional baseball is, but in my experience, it absolutely has gotten better. Um, I never personally felt uncomfortable with my sexuality in a clubhouse. Um, you know, when I did it, when I did come out and you could tell that players were wanting to ask the question of like, well, do you look at me in the shot? Like, you can tell that those thoughts run through and just reminding those guys, like you're a bunch of straight hyper-masculine men. I'm not attracted to you in the least. <laughs> it's just not my type. See, see, you said the thing there, the key that is uh, very important that, oh, and I've joked about this before. I'm like, you might think I'm attracted to you, but not, nah, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can fully, separate the idea of someone being attractive and me being attracted to them. Um, and yeah, just to explain to these guys, like I personally find femininity attractive, um, even in males. Like it is just what I'm drawn towards. It's what I um, relate to most. And so, you know, for a bunch of, you know, hyper-masculine 250 pound guy from 
the South who hunts every weekend and, you know, wears camo day in and day out. Guess what? Not doing it for me, really. Like, you don't have to worry about a thing. And I, I think one worry is, is even the word there. Well, because there yeah, is it this, might be worry for them, I guess. Exactly. It's this fear that somehow they're going to be predated upon. Which is kind of a sad thought that they have been indoctrinated to believe that anybody who's part of the LGBTQ community is a predator. Um, and that actually is a more common thread than I would have expected. It's just this, well, if you're X, Y, or Z from, from that community, you must have something wrong with you, and therefore you must be dangerous. It is a bizarre thing that, um, like, the mental gymnastics to get there astonishes me. I think it always comes back to people wanting to stay in control. Everything comes down to control. And if they, if they lose an element of that control, fight or flight comes in. I mean... I might be wrong. I grew up in a very accepting Jewish household in the suburbs of Philadelphia. None of these things ever came up. None of these things ever will. But again, that's just my small slice of the world. And learning about some of these views from the outside, you know, I, I could have it completely wrong. I could have a caricatured version of this in my head, but probably not. Yeah, I mean, I try to I try to keep it to the individual. And, and if one individual seems to think that, then... All I can do is act as myself, and hopefully they see that at least one person in this community is not dangerous. And hopefully that at least opens the door where they can start thinking about, well, maybe my ideas of this are wrong. If I, you know, if, if that person now respects a member of the community, it can start to change their views on the, on the whole thing. And that I actually have seen in person, um, and that I have seen over the course of some of the years of my career, I've seen guys really change to be more understanding and more accepting of differences because you have to, when you're in a baseball clubhouse, 25, 28 guys, you know, five different countries represented, two different languages being spoken, sometimes three, um, you know, music from here, food from there. It's just, it is probably one of the most diverse sports groups you can put together uh, I would argue maybe European soccer is up there as well. But when it comes to diversity in a sport, baseball has an enormous amount of, um, you know, cultural diversity. And so I think the game is becoming just more accepting due to the fact that it's the nature of the game. It is different to other sports in that there just are, a, like there's always a diversity of, of lived experiences in every sport. But you're right about soccer, but baseball would be up there as one that is more diverse than, say, hockey. Oh, we get back to that again. Let's not, <laughs> make right. this a, let's not make this a dunking on hockey show, although I usually tend to make it a dunking on hockey show most of the time because it always ends up there. Uh, but let's I want to talk get to now the, some of the struggles you went through as you dealt with the life as a minor league baseball player as you're trying to make your way up the ladder and the struggles you encountered. And there are so many different layers of that. Obviously, I think having to hide your sexuality and hide who you truly are played a role in that, as it always does. But, you know, and the, and the story with June Lee, if you haven't read it, I don't know how, how, you, how you haven't read it, but if you <laughs> haven't read it, you should. I mean, it's, it's really tough to read at times. And those experiences, 
how now that you talk about them? Because I don't think up until recently you've likely talked about it that much as now it becomes something that becomes a flashpoint for just how squalid in many ways life of minor league baseball players are. Uh, How do you look back on your own experiences at going through all the struggles and not understanding, you know, who you were in some ways, the system you were involved in, and now to where you fully now kind of understand what that is and you're trying to work to make it better from the inside out? Um, yeah, I'll kind of, for those who, who aren't aware, um, so I was drafted in 2012 and, you know, by the Indians, and I went through up to 2018 with them. In 20, after the 2014 season, I had my first hip surgery. It was a labral repair in my right hip, and I rehabbed in downtown Phoenix. Um, you know, a few years before that, I had started drinking as I got out of, you know, I was 17 years old. I started playing pro ball, and, you know, I kind of started my my party phase. You know, what would have been my college years was spent in the first few years of minor league baseball. Um, but I picked up a very bad drinking habit very quickly, partially because... Um, me being slightly uh, neurodivergent and atypical, it was a lot easier for me to interact with pretty much everybody if my brain was shut down like 40%. Um, I could be a lot more fluid. I could deal with small talk a lot better because small talk is not something I do at all. Um, I find it tedious and I find it boring. So I just started drinking really regularly, um, becoming a functioning alcoholic. And it got worse after my first surgery. And then 2015, I had my second one for my left hip to repair that labrum. And in that off season, um, that's where things really started to take a turn. And that's where the drinking became way over the top. Um, you know, I'd mentioned it in, in, article, and I think I mentioned it in the podcast, it was like $1,000 a week in alcohol. And I was just putting myself through the ringer. I was exhausted. I was never recovering. So I, you know, I was going through my rehab five days a week and drinking six, seven days a week. And so I was never giving my body a chance to catch up. And one night I went down to watch UFC at a Hooters and I was there for probably five, six hours um, just drinking scotch because that's what I was doing at the time. And for anyone who knows me or has seen me really drunk, they know that I don't change that drastically. Um, I don't slur my words too bad. I don't become very wobbly or, you know, my... I can really, really maintain myself quite well. So a lot of people don't realize, oh, he's had 10, 12 drinks. And internally, you know, to put it bluntly, I'm like, I'm bucked up. But a lot of people can't tell. So I don't think there was ever that moment of seeing me and going, that guy needs help. And I don't think I ever gave anyone a chance to really see that I needed help. And after that night, uh, I went back up to my apartment and continue drinking. And at that point, I just wanted quiet. I just wanted it to be done. And so I pulled my one gun 
and uh, I talk about this in the article and, and also in podcasts, uh, I grabbed my Smith & Wesson that has a safety and not my Glock that doesn't. And I still, to this day, I've been asked by teammates, I've been asked by my partner, why do you think you did that? Um, you know, was it intervention of, you know, a cosmic nature or was it subtly trying to test myself to see if I would even do it? I, I can run through scenarios all day long, but I wasn't in a state of mind to be able to recall what I was thinking. But I just, it was a very short period of time from the time I grabbed that gun to being on the floor, putting it to my head and, and attempting to pull the trigger um, with the trigger being blocked by the safety. And after that moment, it was just a breakdown, whether... You know, I, I've written about this in in some of my journals just to try and make sense of it, but I really do think that was a moment in time in which my brain just completely shut down. And when I mean shut down, I mean zero brain activity, like at all. <laughs> and when I woke up, I didn't have really any feelings towards what had happened the night before. I just compartmentalized it and went on with my day. And I look back at that moment now, and I really do wonder if that was a time in which everything sort of reset in my brain. And I had to go through years of quote unquote, like neural infancy to rebuild some of those structures to be healthy again. Um, I have pondered this since uh, oh boy, since 2019, I've just been thinking about this a lot because I finally started to work through some of these issues. And for the life of me, I can't figure out the why. Um, I am just extraordinarily happy to still be here. Um, it, is, it is an incredible story because when you think about it, and I've not said this on this show, but my father committed suicide nearly 19 years ago now. And mm. learning about the stories of what went on with him and how it happened and why it happened, you know, these things are always really personal to me because I see what happened with him. And I see it in everybody you hear about stories about suicide with. And you, you, you don't, sometimes you don't know why. And in some cases, you don't want an explanation, you know? Like, for, for my father, I know what happened. And I know he left a note, but I'll never read it. I just want to have it. And there's part of me that doesn't want to know what he was thinking, you know? And maybe for you, there's part of you that just says, it happened, and maybe you'll never know why. But you're still here. And, you, and after understanding as best to your ability what happened, you can then start to go forward and figure out, how do I go from here? And that included in your life, coming out publicly, and also talking about, you know, what you dealt with as a career minor league player. And whatever the case may be of what happened and why it happened, look, it, we are here to a point now where you've been able to talk about it so publicly and so eloquently. It's something that's so difficult and visceral to talk about. And now you're using those experiences to try to help others understand systems that they might not have understood fully, and you're trying to make those systems better. So whatever the reason why what happened happened, 
it's hard to understand it because so many things in life that are hard to understand and we don't even fully understand ourselves. Look at, look at what that has led you to and it, the good that it has done, because I think differently about, you know, my own experiences in dealing with suicide in my family after listening to that, because it wasn't alcohol that my father dealt with or other things, but I now think about that a little differently. And so those stories can touch a lot of different people for many different reasons. Yeah, I think being able to share that story and really the way that the way that I looked at it somewhat recently, as, as I started really putting more thought into this, as I was getting to the point where I was going to have to talk about it openly, because before um, before going really public, I didn't speak to it, speak to many people about it. Um, it was something I was extraordinarily ashamed of. I, I finally started realizing somewhat recently that being able to speak about it, even if it only helps one person, yeah, and I may never, I may never really know if it makes any enormous impact on someone's life. I, but I will say I have received messages and support that has made every moment of dealing with that and sorting through it and the pain and the struggle and the the time and the effort to rebuild my brain to not hate itself um that it is absolutely worth it and to show that things can change that things can get better you know, I'm a huge advocate for quite a few things, uh, the probably biggest of which being right now, despite my lack of usage personally, is psychedelics for depression, anxiety. Um, I, I became fascinated with how the brain actually functions once I started thinking about that moment from a neurobiological standpoint. Is that the moment in which my brain reset, which to try and give some background to make this all make sense, psychedelics, especially when you take large doses, there is a event that can take place, which is the disillusion of ego. A lot of the times that takes the form of during a psychedelic trip, actually 100% believing that you are dying or that you do die in that psychedelic trip. Now, obviously this is not a physical death. It is a death of your ego. It is, it is a death of how you perceive yourself, how you believe that you are based off all of these experiences that you've had filtered through society. And it strips all that away and it puts you, it lays you as bare as you can be and I think for me, when I stared into what I, I always call it the void, when I just stared into the void that night, um, I had my own version of an ego death. It took me a lot longer to process than say a psychedelic trip would because a psychedelic trip you go through, you know, maybe one life, maybe a thousand lives. They can vary quite differently, but you then have, you know, Ideally, you have therapists to help process that information and integrate that information back into your 
life so that you can make sense of it. And once I started doing that, once I started processing all that information that had been sitting in the back of my head that I'd compartmentalized away, I started really realizing that who I had been is not who I am. And that if I wanted to ever be okay with myself, I had to live authentically. Or I was always gonna question whether or not it was me speaking, doing, living. I was always gonna question if it was just the mask I put up that had become permanent and I was sitting in the back of my mind observing what that mask was doing, or if I was going to take charge and observe the observer, so to say, it's a concept. Um, and finally things started to make more sense. And I started to change how I spoke to myself. And I really want to encourage people to find someone to speak to, find a therapist, find a counselor, find a really good, intelligent, intuitive friend. But break down your conceptions of yourself, break down your conceptions of what society feels that you should be, and take the time to look inside and realize who you are. If, you know, let's just say, for example, uh, you're an NFL linebacker, but you absolutely love crochet. Then to not live authentically and to be able to do what you want to do and to be proud in what you like, what you like and what your passions are, I think it's a very, very difficult way to live. And when I finally got to the point where I said, I'm going to be what I want to be, which was an academic, I am fascinated by learning. I have an enormous curiosity. And so I just poured back into that. I poured back into my childhood self and it freed me up immensely. Yeah. And I mean, for some people, it's much harder to understand who you are, what you are, because your parents, society, yourself, yeah, parents are a big part of it. things of you. Oh, I, I, mean, I idolized my father for 20-something years, um, only to realize it's not who I wanted to be. And that was, a, that was a pretty jarring moment for me when I looked at him and I, I, for the first time, said, this is a flawed individual, this is a human being, but just because he's your father, it doesn't mean you have to follow that. I find that I find that when I I look at my own experiences and understanding that what happened with my dad was a lot of he wasn't who he probably wanted to be. There was a lot in his life that he wasn't able to do that I think he wanted to do because of the constraints that were put on by his parents and the life that he had to live and the path he had to follow and that contributed a lot to what happened. And so maybe I was just lucky younger, that I was able to consciously say who I am is what I am and I just have to live with those things, whatever they are. And I consciously embraced it. I had to refine it over time and people who knew me in high school knew I was not a particularly nice individual. I made a lot of pretty nasty jokes, but it was coming to an understanding of this is just who I am and coming to a fuller understanding of that took time. But once I understood the basis of that, 
it's allowed me to be, even though I've struggled in my career, in my industry, I just know what I wanted, I've known who I am, and I've tried the best I can to embrace it. And that's some of what this podcast is, and my sexuality plays a role in that. But, you know, the one thing I can say about me that I'm most proud of, that I've learned through time, this is not, I haven't, I've done some little therapy things, but that's more related to a nonverbal learning disorder, autism spectrum type thing. Yay, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, a lot of people are high functioning in the autism spectrum and don't know it. It's very obvious to me yeah. as somebody who sees it. It's extremely obvious, and I could talk about that more later. But the, as I just kind of consciously understood, this is who I am, this is what I am, and I just have to embrace it. I got to run with it. Because if I don't, then I could go down the same path that my father went down. And I can't do that. Because there's too many people in my life that cannot go through that again. They went through it once. They, they do not need to go through that again. So that's kind of just the conscious embracing of, of who I am and what I am. And that's what I try to do every day. Some days I'm better at it than others. But that is an incredibly difficult thing for some people to learn. Yeah, and I think... I, I was lucky enough to come to get it myself. Well, that's the other thing is, is I had help because, yes, I had counselors, but I really, I got into cannabis in the fall of 2019. And... Something strange happened, and I'm a huge cannabis advocate from a medicinal standpoint. I noticed something that happened very early on when I started using it. I could no longer lie to myself. This was just a weird kind of side effect that whatever altered consciousness I was in, I was no longer able to lie to myself. If, you know, I had... Um, Say I had done something that upset my partner. I couldn't sit and rationalize and say, well, it's really not that bad. I think, you know, maybe she's overreacting. Hopefully it'll but I would sit there and honestly look at the situation and say, nope, you fucked up. You need to go apologize and you need to be better. And for the first time, the voice that was in my head wasn't that ruminative, depressive, um, self-loathing voice. It was something different. It was lighter. It was nicer. It was more honest with myself in a good way. Um, I wasn't over-criticizing. I wasn't berating myself for little mistakes. And it started to change my thought pattern quite a bit. Um, and for the first time, I was going through my day without having that depressive, ruminative voice just piercing through every thought that I had. Um, now, I, I can't say that that would work for everybody, but it was a modality that allowed me to change my consciousness, to change the way that I looked at myself, to alter my perspective, and ultimately fully change the way that I um, look at the world. It really did. And, it, you know, sometimes it's, it's really hard to break out of those thought patterns if your brain has become extremely rigid and has formed these synaptic connections that are negative in nature, um, that, you know, process information negatively, that when you have a thought about yourself, it is always negative. That is a brain issue. That is your brain structure crying out for help a little bit. And, you know, part of the reason I'm so interested in psychedelics and, and the reason I enjoyed cannabis as a medicinal plant was it allowed me to kind of break those those rigid synaptic connections. 
and form new ones that I could dictate as more positive or better. And for whoever it is that's listening to this, you might not want to do psychedelics. No, they're not for everybody. Some people, it might not be for everybody. It's certainly not for me. I can say that as somebody who knows I have an addictive personality and that at times, and that would be a bit of a problem. So So I'm I'm assuming you haven't dabbled into psychedelics at all. No. Well, the thing is, as I say, I have a, I I worry because I have an addictive personality. I know that I do not drink. I'm stone sober. Probably will never drink because I worry about these things. And I just, I I was lucky for me just to kind of understand these things on my own terms. Yeah. You know, or at least the best understanding that I could have of it at the moment. And maybe it'll change. But like when I went to college, I didn't party. I didn't do any of that. I didn't want to. I didn't feel like I had to. I went to college to do what I wanted to do and to enjoy what I wanted to enjoy. And in many regards, I really did enjoy it. And I enjoy what I do in my line of work, even though it's been an immense struggle. I just called my first game in like two years, a couple days before I recorded this. And I listened back to some of it. And from a technical play-by-play perspective, it wasn't some of my best work. But I was there, and I know that I go back and I look at it, you know, and I go and I'm like, I really enjoyed doing this. I was just happy being there. All of the things that go into doing this job that are sometimes really annoying and hard, they all go away when you're just doing it. I'm not thinking about it. I'm just doing what I, I feel like I'm meant to do. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes that's all that matters. You know, like I can imagine for you when you're in the groove pitching, or when you were in the group pitching, or when you're in that mode where it's like, I feel like I'm in the place in my life where I need to be, and I'm just doing what comes naturally. It's like a few It's state. such a great feeling. Yeah. It's, you know, people call it the zone or fugue states. It's when you're no longer thinking about what you have to do because it is so natural to you. It's, it's more fluid to not think about it. It is a quote that uh, I got from Stuart Copeland, oddly enough, the drummer of the police. This is one of the dumbest places you could get this quote, but I got it when he was talking about making the music for Spyro the Dragon, a PlayStation game that is <laughs> very important in my life, and I still listen to the music all the time. And he was talking about the difference between playing and composing, and that's where I first heard the expression, you know, basically, when he was talking about playing music, he's like, I don't think. My hands do the walking. It's a bodily function. And it was the first time I'd ever heard that phrase, used in that way, and I think about, you know, what I do when I'm in a good mood writing, when I'm doing a podcast, and it's just flowing naturally. These podcast episodes and questions are not scripted. You could probably tell that, but I'd rather let them just flow because it's much more fun that way, but also, you're not thinking, and when you script it, it could sound like it, and the conversations just flow naturally, and it sounds a lot better, and the same thing when I'm doing, you know, other things, play-by-play, and I just, I just do it, and You think about it some in the moment, but you don't think about all the other things that go, you know, the struggles you had going into it or the fact that you had to wake up earlier than you'd like to or you don't have stats for any of the players on the team. You just do it. And it is a really good feeling. And I don't know how many people get to experience that feeling in life. And you should always try as best you can, however you can, to get to that feeling. Yeah, I think it's fundamentally life-changing to get there. I think to have that moment where whatever it may be, uh, you know, I think... I think part of the reason video games are so popular is because it's kind of easy to get into a fugue state when you're playing video games. Yeah, it is. Um, it definitely is. You're not thinking about your breathing. Your body's, for the most part, disconnected. You're only focusing on your fingers. Um, 
and you are embodying something else. You are, you know, I was playing The Witcher earlier. I absolutely love The Witcher game, uh, The Witcher 3. And yeah, you can just kind of get absorbed and, and lose yourself for an hour or two. And it's nice to do that. Um, I think where it gets dangerous is where that hour or two turns into five, seven, nine, ten. Um, oh yeah, everything can be everything can yeah. be dangerous. Because then you and, become then you start dissociating from reality. Yeah, and that can be and just I, as dangerous. I, I should play more video games than I do, but I I have enjoyed the times when I do it. You know, and sometimes when sometimes when I'm you know you're writing, or at least in my case when I'm writing, sometimes I'll just turn on music I like, I'll write, and it just happens. It's just yeah. there. It's a, and it's a good I, feeling. And somebody, I had those questions when people ask me, well, how can I be a better writer? And I was like, maybe I'm not the person to ask because what I write sometimes is just innate. <laughs> just sort of happens. You know, it'll just roll off and then I'll have to, you know, sit on it for a day and then look at it again. You know, it's funny. You know, with the brain. So many of the writers that I've either read about writing or spoken to, they say the best way to go is to just start writing. Stream of consciousness throw it on paper, go as long as you can, give it a day, and then go back and look at it with clean eyes. Um, I started writing a lot on my theories on human sexuality and psilocybin mushrooms. So I have my thoughts, but I found it so much easier to just type out what I know based off what I've read and what I've watched and what I understand and to just go and go and go and type that all out and then supplement it with information that I didn't have available. Um, you know, that's, that's what I've found has worked for me. And I think part of that has to be trusting that what you know is good information. Yeah. And there's a plenty of times when you, you might not have good information. That's, that's, that's me. You know, sometimes I'll write and I'm like, eh, probably need to do that better, but that's fine. It's always about, it's always about that self-improvement. Look, Okay, let's get to the theories on human sexuality. I think I've waited yeah. an hour to talk about bonobos, and I'll let you go off on this now, because you should. I, and the discussion you have is very interesting. But it also comes to you know, how we have compartmentalized human sexuality in our societies. And I think a lot of it, you know, as being a history guy, and learning about history, and learning about how previous you know, societies and previous empires, previous groups of people thought about themselves and thought about the world around them, it's very fascinating. You know, I think a lot of it with human sexuality comes into probably control or controlling for what we can't understand. And I think a lot of that becomes, you know, manifest in how people, you know, associated with their own sexuality. Some societies did it better than others. Uh, but for you, and you, you, you connected more to the animal world, obviously, uh, your theories on human sexuality are very interesting. They're far more interesting than mine. So uh, I'll let you. I'll let you have your floor to talk about this. Yeah. So um, to give a little background, this kind of came about. Um, well, <laughs> it came about because I was curious as to why humans have such large penises in comparison to other primates. Ah, uh, yes. It's great being bisexual, isn't it? And it is surprising. I mean, the a gorilla, a silverback mountain gorilla has roughly a two-inch penis. You know, it... And it has to do with their style of sexuality. So, silverback gorillas, chimpanzees, baboons, these are all tournament species, male-dominator cultures. Um, you have 
a patriarchal society in which the males of a family stick together and therefore protect each other and try to pass on their genes. Um, in chimpanzees, they have much larger testicles than we do because they produce significantly more sperm. And as um, vulgar as it seems, it is to flush out the previous suitor's sperm. So I think we can all safely say humans don't quite operate that way. Um, Whoa, you're kidding. <laughs> so, you know, I started, I was just very curious about the why on a lot of this. Um, so I started looking into it a bit more and there's really not a lot of information as to why the human genitalia formed the way they did. Um, you know, even on the female side, you have multiple different ways of orgasm, including clitoral G-spot, um, anal. Just, so you have different ways to reach this, whatever you want to call it, I guess just orgasm, um, which releases bonding chemicals, oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin. Um, and so I started thinking about it more and more. And then I was watching Robert Sapolsky of Stanford give a lecture on sexuality, human sexuality, and he brought up chimps and bonobos. So to give some background on that, 1.4 million years ago, the Congo splits part of Africa. On the north side of the Congo, you have chimpanzees and gorillas. On the south side of the Congo, you have a population of chimpanzees that is now a founder population. A founder population is a small group that breaks off from the main species and typically changes their behavior quite drastically because they have to operate differently. So on the north side of the Congo, you have chimpanzees competing with gorillas for resources and food and other chimpanzee troops. Um, in chimpanzee troops, they are male dominated. You have a patriarchal society and they will patrol the edges of their borders. And if they come across another male chimpanzee, they will hunt it down and kill it and rip it apart. Um, they are an extremely violent culture. When you go south of the Congo, they're no longer competing for resources. So instead of choosing for aggression and strength and the ability to fight, now the gene selection for this population is cooperation. And bonobos do something that is very unique among the primate community. They settle a large percentage of their disputes with sex. And it is any which way you can think of. I think the only species with more uh, variability and depravity is humans. And so I had this idea that about four million years ago, um, humans broke off from whatever lineage, and we'll start with Australopithecus. Um, and they now had to adapt to a new environment as the savannas were forming across Africa, as the jungles were receding, the land was drying up, and they had to change the way that they operated. So if you have a smaller population of now bipedal uh, primates that are needing to work together to survive, and so they're choosing for cooperation and not domination, you may see a similar pathway. You may see that humans along that four million year span were not a hyper-violent um, combative culture, but a more 
uh, loving culture, I suppose would be the best way to put it. And it had to do with if you could interact and bond with another human being, your chances of survival went up. If you could interact and bond with 10 human beings, your survival went up tenfold. And that just continued. The more that you could be involved in a tight-knit tribe, the more protection you had. And so I really do believe that humans early, early on were similar bonobos in how they bonded and how they operated. And we see evidence in the genomic record that Homo sapiens also mated with Denisovians, Neanderthals, um, Homo floriensis. So there's this huge back and forth of genes between these, uh, you know, we'll call them different species of, of hominids, but there clearly wasn't these hyper-violent outbursts where um, Homo sapiens were going in and decimating camps of, of Neanderthals. We haven't really seen evidence of that. We have seen evidence of, you know, fighting and war, but no different than we would probably see from from any other uh, from any other uh, like animal situations in which in which they come across competing resources, uh, competing for resources. And I think that that went all the way up until about twelve thousand years ago. Uh, I talk about the agricultural revolution being probably where it all started going downhill. Um, as we started to be more stationary and build kingdoms, and then eventually the concepts of ownership and money and trade and all of you know these modern ideas start to come into play. Um, and eventually we started to get away from this kind of free living, orgiastic, nomadic tribal community into a more hierarchical, um, now another male dominator culture, um, and this is something Terence McKenna talks about at length in Food of the Gods, which is one of my favorite books. Uh, Terence McKenna is probably one of my bigger inspirations for a lot of uh, what I research and, and look into. I think he was a genius way ahead of his time, who unfortunately passed away in 2000. But if you go back and listen to him speak, he had it figured out in the 90s and what was going to be happening today. Um, he he had seen the patterns, and this was a guy who was a ethnobotanist and a, a a true psychonaut. This he explored the realms of consciousness more than most, and um, it's just we somehow got off track. And I don't think that our modern idea of sexuality matches up with our innate genomic structure. I don't think that we are meant to be the way that we are. And I think it is causing enormous um, isolation and depression in certain individuals because they don't match with society. Um, <clears throat> I, I want to say the number of marriages that end in divorce is somewhere between 20 and 40%. Um, the largest number or the largest reason for that is infidelity. Well, the idea that humans are meant to be with one person romantically for 50 years, hate to say it, completely absurd. It I mean, might work for some. It, and there are absolutely people who can do it. I, there are people who are 
innately monogamous who feel comfortable doing it that way. Um, but I do think that there is a large, and I mean a large percentage, we're talking somewhere around 50 to 60% of people who are not innately monogamous, that they have um, polyamorous tendencies or they are innately polyamorous um, in that they have the ability to love and care for and sexually relate to more than one person. Um, this is a concept that in the Western world is starting to gain ground, but is still considered extremely taboo. Um, we can thank a few different things for that, but part of it being the Catholic Church and the institution of marriage. Um, but yeah, I just looking at the way society is and seeing the damage that can be done to those who are um, isolated. Well, no, I, I, what I'm saying is like, those who are isolated from the sexual pool, as I'll call it, it fucks with their brains immensely. Um, are you familiar at all with incels? I'm way too familiar with it. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You are absolutely... Well, I was going to mention, as you were talking about it during that incredible discussion, which I'll leave it to you, because that's not my area of expertise. Uh, I'm going to quote LeVar Ball and stay in my lane on that. Uh, <laughs> but I think that it makes sense, because you talk about people who are just end up being isolated and don't have the human interactions that they need to, not sexually, but just in general. In general, yeah. I mean, look at what and happened that's, And that's a huge problem. We are a species that is designed to talk to... That's why the pandemic screwed with a lot of people, because we couldn't it, talk with people. It really it broke a lot of people. And um, coming, out of the, coming out of 2020 and going into 2021, I'd had conversations with people where I said, this is going to be one of the most violent years on record. And ah, makes sense. sporting events have been a great example of why. People do not know how to interact in public anymore. And it's really shocking how quickly that can happen, how quickly the disconnect from cooperative humanity can happen. Granted, I think the opposite is equally as true, that having a paradigm shift from the individual ego, male dominator, patriarchal, you know, hierarchy, I think that the paradigm shift can happen extremely quickly to move away from that. Um, and I think it's actually starting, I think it actually started with the pandemic, uh, where people kind of realized, hey, we're kind of getting sold out. I mean, getting sold out to corporations, getting sold out to uh, arms manufacturers. There's so many different ways in which people around the world have just the end of it, the, the, the general population has been sold out by a few individuals and has caused enormous strife globally. I personally want to start pushing towards that paradigm shift where we move away from this hyper consumerism, um, you know, ego dominated idea of self and realize that the universe is quite large and we are extremely, extremely insignificant in that. And to put so much self-importance on one individual, um, I just think is a, a recipe for dissatisfaction because no one individual will ever provide you with what you, you know, really need. It even happened, you know, I came out and 
I had there's this there's this comment thread on one of my Instagram photos where guys were upset at me for coming out as a bisexual male in a heteronormative relationship. Uh, I was going to get to that. I was going to get <laughs> I do to want that. to talk about that cuz it it's one of the more get, I was going to get to it, but I was going to let you bring it up because uh, it's that's a can of worms. Yeah, I mean bi erasure is a real thing. I think we're oh, all aware of that. Sure as hell is. Uh, despite the fact that I think this is a personal opinion, so whoever doesn't like it, deal with it. Um, I believe that bisexuality is actually closer to being the default than heterosexuality. And I, you know, part of the reason I'm comfortable saying that is I think most people are aware that uh, women who are kind of allowed to be a little more free with their sexuality when it comes to bisexuality, because male-dominated culture, you know, it's okay if they do it because from the male-dominated culture perspective, they don't see them as equals. And so, it, you know, it's it's less, it hits further away from home that, you know, they can be bisexual, but males, males can't be bisexual. We're the, uh, the dominators. We, you know, we take what we want. It's a completely bullshit argument, but it's been thrown around a lot. Um, but I do believe that bisexuality is is slightly more default because it allows you to get along with both males and females of your tribe much easier. To me, that makes sense if you're trying to survive and you can get along with both sexes. That um that would be quite beneficial in a survival standpoint. Yeah, you're, you're right. And, and that's it's all very like obvious. Well, I wouldn't say obvious. It's it all makes sense. Well, once you, you say look, it, you go like, yeah, no, that makes sense. But you have to say it to people. For it yeah. To, you people know, have make to sense. hear, you know, something different to what they've been told their entire life. And it has to make so much sense that what they've been told their entire life now, now no longer does. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think about it, you know, for, for me, it's just like, it's always been, you know, who I am. I realized it, you know, I look back on life and I go, actually, no, I've liked men and women this whole time. Hey. Yeah. Why, why, why did, and there were just, I didn't understand it. And that was because of the society we grew up in. The structures didn't allow for that. And it's changing now as the folks younger than us. I mean, I might hate TikTok, but at least it has done something good for society in that, you know, younger generations do not see the world in the same way older generations have. Yeah, there's, and that's there is good. A lot less, there's a lot less just stark black and white, you know, right or wrong. I live in a gray good. area, which I love because I can... And life of, is gray area. Yeah, exactly. There's there's life very very area. few things that are it, that are uh, cut and dry. And I I mean I I you know and and as long as and as I've said it repeatedly and I'll I I mean you don't need to, you don't need to be say it here but it's just, as long as you are comfortable with who you are and that allows you to get along and live the best life you can, that's all you need. And I can't possibly define that for you. Exactly, and, and that I, I'm not going to define it for you. That's impossible. No, and that was the thing that just like blew my mind about this this one Instagram thread that has been going on in my comments for a while. Is guys were so angry with me about coming out while being part of a heteronormative relationship, not realizing that I've never had the opportunity to explore a non-heteronormative relationship. Like I have never even had the chance to, because of my perception of my profession, it would not be accepted. So I didn't even bother. Now, granted, I was privileged enough to have the option to say, I don't want to explore that. 
you know, when I talk about bravery in the community, I don't refer to myself because I really genuinely don't believe what I did was that brave. Um, even in my conversation with June, I said, you know, I, I'll bring this up because it's a part of who I am, but it's not really the story. And I talked about my bisexuality. It had nothing to do with the baseball. It was just a part of who I am. And it kind of explains my story a little bit better if you know that. But I knew that if I'd gone to the media and said, hey, I'm bisexual, it would have been a media firestorm, which is why I avoided it for years. Um, but, you know, these people were so angry with me. And my only question was, what do you want me to do about it? I am one person. I am not the entire community. I am one tiny speck of dust. And if my decision to come out and also be happy that I'm in a heteronormative relationship with one of the most incredible people I've ever known, regardless of their sex or gender, uh, she is a spectacular human being. And it just never made sense to me why people would get well, so upset. in the upset. end, I just go like, who cares? It's not it's, your wife. Yeah, and like, it, yeah, it, it was just one of those things where I wanted to respond and I'm like, I'm not going to get anywhere with this because these are uh, disenfranchised people who don't feel that there's hope for the community to continue uh, having this kind of positive. Uptick. I mean, I, the one thing that stunned me as, as I started to understand what bisexuality was, was how much bi erasure there was from gay people. Yeah. That yeah, threw yeah, yeah. me the first time I understood it. I completely get it now, but it threw me the first time I heard about it. It just, I was, I could not understand it. And, and I do, I do better now with it, but it just, it made next to no sense. It was <laughs> utterly, it broke me for a while. Just well, not, not in a, not in a terrible sense, but it broke my brain. I'm like, I, I don't get this. It's and that cognitive dissonance of like, as, as gay, uh, as gay people, you would hate if a straight person said, you can't come out as gay with, with your husband because I'm straight. It just doesn't make any sense. It, there's no way to draw it up and do the, the, the mental gymnastics to make that make sense to me. I want to be a positive influence in the community, but I'm talking about my small little wedge of baseball and bisexuality. Those are the only two things that I can genuinely cover um, and do any good in. You know, it, <laughs> I can't. I, I can't solve all the community's problems. And I think there are certain people out there who feel that if you come out publicly and you get any sort of attention for it, that you should somehow have the answers to all the problems. For some people, for the people advocacy is just not cut out for them. You're, you're different, like, but like for some people, advocacy is just not their thing. And I'm going to bring up a couple of things that, you know, from this has been an amazing year for people coming out in sports. It really has. It, yeah. Truly the remarkable. Olympics, the Olympics was a, a bunch great of things that I didn't think were going to happen happened. And it all happened in quick succession. So, you know, I'll talk about Carl Nassib here for a second. Like, the idea, and a lot of, I'm seeing it posted in a lot of plate. like, there's an immense fascination for me, not that he has a boyfriend. I couldn't care less. You know, good for him. But it was more like, I want to know, what was your thought process like? How did you get from where you were to where you are? You know, those are the things that matter to me and just trying to understanding the world because that will make us more able to understand how we can unpack structures that exist to make these sports and these spaces better for people like us. 
And there's a lot of fascination with Carl Nassib because he has a boyfriend now and he's posted it on Instagram and, you know, hey, it's not a distraction anymore. It was never a distraction. Yeah, it never was. And if you were distracted by it, then you have too much time on your hands and you should be focusing on other things. Thank you. The like, end. but I mean, really, I think everyone can agree with that. And, um, you know, for some funny enough, just that advocacy is not what they are. Like, they just want to live their lives yeah, and, and allow them to. And I'll, you know, I, I can't speak for him, but I'll speak for myself. The reason that I do not consider myself to be a brave individual for coming out is because I have been able to live heteronormatively for 27 years. And to me, the the genuinely brave people in our community are those who were never ever able to hide who they were, who had to live openly and out and deal with the persecution and the um, discrimination and the hate. And to me, it's years and years and generations of people being extraordinarily brave by being themselves from day one and never letting anybody tell them differently, despite the fact that it could have cost them their life, it could have cost them their job, it could have cost them health care. Um, those, the, those are the people who allowed men like myself and Carl to come out and to do so in such a passive way. And, yeah, you're right. and you know, I, I can't thank them enough, nor can I express enough how much I really owe them um, for being able to do this. And with I also such think ease. that there, there's another element to this too. It's like, I think some people, because of the society we live in, think too often that all queer people are in a box and they all look like a certain stereotype when it's not true. Because there's yeah. plenty of queer people who act in a way that, you know, quote unquote conforms with society, like me or you because, or uh, what have you, because that's just might be who they are. Well, because they're people. I mean, queer people are people, which means they have as much complexity and um, differentiation in their lives as any other population at large. I, I just, I'm not huge on labeling because um, I do find that it, it separates people more and more. Um, you know, if, if all of a sudden we're really getting down to the fact that, well, if you're a, you know, this, that, and the other, then that's your group and you need to go over there. I just, to me, that's not how I would want it to work. I would want, hey, you're a human being and you seem to respect me as a human being. There we go. That's all it takes for me to, you know, be accepting of someone is just mutual human respect. Yeah. I mean, that's all that it is, but I mean, there are just still layers that people are, it's going to be hard for them to understand. And I mean, we're, we're, we're different and said like, well, you're definitely more along that, that path than I am as opposed to, you know, the, the large majority. But I, I, I just find it interesting when we, we see how these, these people, like there are people who are who they are, you know, and have been for the longest time. And yeah, they, they, they paved the way. And they deserve all the credit in the world because they did make it easier. And everybody who came out made it a slightly bit easier for the, for the next people to come out. We've and had that, some very interesting discussions here, but we have to get back to baseball and your advocacy. Like, we haven't talked about it enough. Um, we are heading into a very interesting time in the sport with could be a very tense CBA negotiation. Yeah, I would say tense is probably the lightest way of putting it. Um, probably the light. 
I might even put Bettman-esque, get back to hockey, you know, because every time there was a work stoppage in hockey, it felt like the world was collapsing. And in yeah, I would cases, say it um, was. tumultuous is probably a good word. I, I so, think it is going to be a... Um, there are going to be some, there are going to be some low points. I, I will, I will, I agree with you. I think there are going to be some real low points going forward. But for your purposes, in advocating to make minor league baseball better, to cut through the the myth of minor league baseball, I like to think about it. The boys on the bus, the working your way up the ladder, yeah. all things that turned out to be cover for all of the horrible things that actually happened in minor league baseball, and the fact that they're basically not even paid. You might even want to call them indentured servants at times because, like, that's kind of what happens. Yeah, I've used right. that term before. Have you? I have used that to describe minor leaguers uh, once or twice. Ah, I'm not the only one. So let's put you in with Tony Clark, MLBPA, and you're negotiating with the owners. And negotiations are negotiations. But what are you looking for? What do you want to be things that can be done – the fundamental changes are probably not going to happen, even though this is the time for, I think, fundamental changes in baseball. It needs it in some ways. But what are you looking for There's, that you could get in a negotiation like this to make minor league baseball better, to produce better major league baseball players? Yeah, uh, I think there's three very, very simple things that can be done that, um, from a holistic standpoint, will make every organization better. First of which being housing, which has been addressed but not fixed um currently we are trying to figure out what the best structure would be um and it is very complicated because you have i think you know five thousand or so minor leaguers um ideally i want to be able to cover about 95 percent of them and then the other five percent can be picked up by certain organizations um that are sorry certain yeah certain charitable organizations that focus on helping the individual baseball player um, ideally, I would like to see fur furnished housing supply that is turnkey by the team. So when players arrive, they get their key, they you know go to their apartment or dorm or whatever it is, turn the key, and they have their own room, their own bathroom, and they can drop their stuff, and everything's already set up. Their Wi-Fi is on, their electricity's on, they have a bed. For housing, you know, I really do think that it needs to be as clean and simple and um, as possible with some flexibility. I think the guy should be able to opt out and pick a stipend if they want to. Um, you know, say they live in the city that they're playing in and they don't want to go live at the team apartment because they have a house five minutes away, they should be able to opt out of the team apartment and get a stipend instead. Um, but I do think that the structure has to cover 95% of the players. And if you have children, you have to be in a place that is equal to the size of your family, just like the ECHL and hockey does it. You Amazing! Hockey does something better than baseball. They're, well, what? yeah, their their minor league unionization is significantly better than ours because they have one. Um, oh my God! Congratulations to the folks at hockey. They've done something good well, for once. Yeah, I mean, um, the Huntsville Havoc saved us this year by allowing us to live in their apartments. Otherwise, we I don't know what we would have done. The next, the next most congratulations important congratulations to hockey. The next most you, important you, thing. I should cut that bit of the podcast out and then send it around to to some of the folks around, uh, not just the ECHL, but on up the ladder and say, congrats, you're doing something right. Yeah, if, if you ever get a chance to talk to Keith Jeffries from the Huntsville Havoc, um, I owe him a lot. But Well, I, I, can, I can understand why. 
because I mean, I, I, it just doesn't compute in my brain that hockey does something better. Well, they legally have to. Um, Glad MLB they legally an, have to. Because they don't have um, antitrust an exemption. antitrust exemption. Exactly. You are correct. Um, the next, the next big thing is pay, and the way that I've worked this out is minimum wage for the hours we work during the season and the hours we work out of the season. Uh, during the season, roughly 60 hours a week, we're typically at the field about 10 hours a day. That changes, but if you include bus rides and all the other things that we do, let's just call it an even 60 hours a week at $15 an hour. And then in the off season, uh, part-time would be 25 hours a week, which is roughly what guys work out um, after taking their you know three, four weeks off. They're typically working out about 25 hours a week. And at minimum wage, that comes out to about $30,000 a year. To me, that should be the bare minimum pay for any affiliated baseball player. If you are just signing into the A, the ACL or yeah, the ACL it's called now, you should be making $30,000 that year. And that doesn't just mean you get paid in the five month season. It means you get a year round pay because guess what? We work year round. Um, it's absurd to think that we only work during the championship season. It's just not true. Um, and I think it's a very dangerous narrative to keep pushing. And the last thing is just nutrition. Um, to have any sort of a standardized nutrition to make sure that guys are eating a completely balanced uh, nutritional profile, getting all their amino acids, their protein, their carbs, they're able to recover, their gut microbiome is being taken care of, which has cascading effects on your mental health, your sleep, your performance. Um, you know, all these things are extremely important and without them being addressed, teams are actively leaving wins on the table. You will win more games if your players are in better shape and eating better and, and healthier. Yeah. And you'll make more money too, because you make more money when you win. Uh, yeah. That, and that's the other thing is if you are having more players that are better, plain and simple, they're healthier, they have more muscle tone, they're moving faster, they're recovering better. Well, now you're, let's say you have 20 guys in your organization who you consider fringe prospects, but you don't really have space for them at the big league level. Well, now if they are improved by, let's say, 10%, they're now no longer fringe prospects. They're legitimate prospects. And legitimate prospects fetch you a lot more money on the trade market than fringe guys do. And so it's this cascading effect of, well, if we take care of our guys on the back end, they can take care of us. Look at what the Dodgers and the Rays have done so well. They have taken marginal players and turned them into all-stars. And it's because they are providing them a better environment to play and grow and learn and live. And it's really interesting you bring up the, the Dodgers and Rays because you have the two completely different ends of the money spectrum. You have the Rays yep. who have no money. Well, they have money, but they complain they have no money. And the Dodgers who actually have all the money. And they're both able to do it. So if the team that plays in a turkey in St. Petersburg compared to the team that has billions of dollars on standby, if they both can do it, then everyone in the middle can do it. Yeah, especially, no when, you, especially when you take in revenue sharing and um, cable deals. The amount of money that's coming into baseball, let's not even bring up the betting money that's now coming into baseball. Um, yeah, it can be done pretty easily. And I think the, the calculation from June Lee in the piece was like, Five million per team or something to that effect? It's something like that for like a full reform. Um, 
Now, which again, compared to who owns these teams, $75 billion worth of owners. That's how, that's, on, that's who owns it. And so to me, it is either, I've, I've used this phrase before. It is either ignorance or apathy. Both are equally bad. You either don't care or you don't know, or sorry, you either don't know or you don't care. Um, that. How much do you? I have to interrupt here just briefly. But how much do you think that the myths of what we think minor league baseball is, which it clearly isn't, you know, the boys on the bus, the working your way up the ladder, playing in these small towns for the love of the game kind of thing, like how toxic truly is that? Because I, I think about it from the outside, and somebody who has applied to do play by play at minor league baseball jobs and get them, you know, that kind of thing, because it's the same thing in broadcasting. A lot of people work their way up through minor league baseball, but you know, in terms of the players themselves, how much does that myth of what minor league baseball is contribute to some of the problems that we're seeing with this right now and um, the resistance to making changes? I think it goes back to that kind of that cognitive dissonance. We living the lifestyle understand that what we're being, what is being sold to the fans and what we are living that reality are two completely different things. Um, the, the the narrative really isn't false, though. I mean, we are going to small towns, being on the bus, working our way up the ladder. All that stuff is true. What is getting left out is the organizational player, the guy who the front office knows never has a chance to play in the big leagues, but they'll fly him across the country five times a year to go, you know, hey, you're going to go throw in double A, and then four days later they're like, hey, you're going to go throw in low A, and then you're going to go throw in triple A just because you can abuse that guy and you know, you're not losing anything on the back end. The, the narrative that there were front offices who did not know what was going on, that one kind of pissed me off. Well, how could that be even remotely possible? With all right? the information that they have, some of it is privy and we'll never know. Like, how is that possible? Well, for anybody to not know that. That's what I couldn't make sense of. And then when I realized how poor the communication can be in certain organizations, you realize that that information just never, ever gets to the top. It just never, ever makes its way to be heard by somebody who can actually make a decision to make a change. And I don't think that's been the case in the majority of organizations. I think the majority of organizations are very, very aware of what's been going on and have been actively um, suppressing on the information coming out so that they wouldn't have to make the changes. Well, now they do, and information is going to continue to get disseminated by the players and by organizations that is undeniable and with complete veracity. I mean, they can't deny anything that we said because everything we said was completely true. I also want to ask this. Do you think that journalists, people who cover baseball, could have done a better job in this? Like, is there a limit to how much they would have known and could have reported on? I, you know what, I'm not sure. There was definitely, when Sam Blum came out, um, a writer from The Athletic with the Angels, when he came out to Alabama and saw what we were living in, he was pretty shocked. Um, I think there's an understanding, but I don't think there's context. I think to actually contextualize what we live in, um, to put it into the perspective of 
every an everyday person, that's where it really starts to hit home for a lot of people. When you're talking about, you know, this guy had a kid in spring training and has not seen his kid in six months because he can't afford to fly his family out because he's living, you know, two to a bedroom in a 10 by 10 room with three other guys in the house outside of that room. You can't have your family and your newborn child. It's not possible. And what it, it would be detrimental to your teammates to have a one-year-old child living in a house with five people, five men. Um, so all these little things that, you know, the individual deals with, but happen on mass throughout minor league baseball. Those are the things that aren't talked about. You know, it's the guy who has to, um, you know, paid $1,200 to ship his car out. And then three weeks into the season, he gets promoted and his car's stuck in one city and he's in another. And they're not offering to pay for it. Well, also the other part about it is these cities could be pretty disparate geographically too. Yeah, there's some that are, I mean, Kodak, Tennessee, where the, where the um, Tennessee Smokies play, there's nothing. I, I, I well, I mean, like, but even for you, like the Angels AA affiliates in Huntsville, Alabama, like yeah. there is in some cases, there's just no geographic sense to a lot of it. And while eliminating minor league baseball teams for the sake of eliminating them for cost certainty was stupid, you know, there needed to be, I mean, there needs to be some geographic sense to these leagues. Yeah, you know, I, I know you're not going to get it all the time, but like the, that's another thing. The new like, league structure, actually, I, I kind of liked. Uh, the travel was certainly easier. The six-game series were different but enjoyable. Uh, they certainly get more chirpy, and, and there's certainly some more tension in those games, and they feel like playoff series at times. Um, you know, we didn't have any 14-hour bus rides this year. That was a plus. I mean, uh, like, again, like, think about, like, and I also think about it from the broadcaster perspective because I've been – not that baseball is a sport I don't like to do, but it's not, it's not my best sport. I'll say that personally. And I, I just think about some of that for the, for the broadcaster, and I think about you know, what they see, because they're also on those buses every day, right? But perhaps some of those broadcasters aren't like, talking about what they see. Like, couldn't they do it? Like, just, just from my perspective. And, you know, would they go? Because they're going through that same sort of grind, in air quotes, that the players are. You yeah. know, they're trying to get promoted to get a new job. But Culture of... It's a culture of fear. Um, yeah. Has been for a long time. And and maybe I'm glad I don't like. I don't think I'm going to be doing minor league baseball in my career. I think I, I would enjoy it, but I probably don't think I'm going to be doing it. And maybe that's for the best. I don't know. Uh, right. I certainly think it's an experience that is um, unique. Yeah, and I, I think it's in minor leagues in a lot of sports. But as we're starting to see minor leagues sort of develop, a la baseball in other places. Like, you just hope that they don't make the same mistakes in the structures. I've seen it when, you know, I, I called some minor league soccer recently. And you would hear about the coaches talking about the living accommodations. You're like, and I go back and I think about it and go, oh, well, wait a second here. Is this really all that different, you know, from, from yeah. what we saw with baseball? Like, or is, is it better now? It is better in some ways in soccer because there was a union. But, you know, these are all questions that I have as we start to kind of unpack these things. You know, and then you have college football and all these other. Anyway, we could again. This podcast has already been going for nearly an hour and forty-five minutes. We have to end it at some point, and so I will now <laughs> pivot this to the topic about out people in baseball. And the number is very small still. You are one, 
Brian Ruby's another. Ruby's another. Um, you have Bill. You have Billy Bean. Billy Bean. working with the commissioner, but the number is just—it's tiny. Yeah, and I mean, it, David Denson it, was really the first. Um, yeah, and, I never and want I his name to be forgotten because he was a friend of mine as well. Um, I, I think that the the out people in baseball have to stick together because the number of like publicly out people is just so tiny that, you know, you, you become friends with people like that very quickly. Um, there are obviously more. You said my, one of my favorite quotes of all time, and I'm paraphrasing, this is a sport about statistics, and if uh, you're telling me that the statistics are, uh, what was it? That I'm the only one. Yeah, you're only one. I'm 6,000. Yeah, which is complete garbage, because, I mean, you even, I mean, even going on based on old stats, if something like 5% of the population identifies LGBTQ+, then you cut it down for men, you'd still get, like, 100-plus in baseball. Yeah, I, I would assume the numbers somewhere, you know, if it's 5,000 players, it's probably around 300. It has uh, to be. Like, it's, it's statistically impossible. And I want to ask you, like, first of all, have anybody, has anybody come to you and talked to you privately after you came out about this? Or, or is, is, the, is that something that people think happens more than it actually does? I think people think it happens more than it actually does. Um, if it was as easy for people to, you know, see an example of someone doing it and then just build the courage to make an enormous, well, you know, it, it feels a lot more enormous than it is, I suppose. Um, well, because the structure of baseball and the structure of sports makes it feel more enormous. But let's not forget, sports. you know, these guys have families that may not, that may not be accepting of it. Um, they may be from areas where it is completely foreign to that area. Um, you know, in certain cultures, there is a, if you're not, you know, I'll use the Latino culture a little bit. If you're not machismo, sometimes there's um, some discrimination against you. Like Latino machismo is a huge thing, especially in baseball. Um, but there's also some very obviously non-heteronormative people in baseball that maybe they don't know it yet, or maybe they just are very comfortable with keeping it to themselves. Um, it would be, it would certainly be nice to have someone reach out and confide in me, but I don't fully expect it. Um, it's, it's probably a tough thing to do, especially, I, I... especially with someone like me who is out speaking to media um, in a public eye. I would think, I would think they would think if we, if I talk to him, then someone's going to find out about it. Publicly. Exactly. And that's, exactly. and that's closeted brain. And the last thing anybody wants to do is be outed off of their own terms or be outed, not on their own terms. Um, and you know, an example of that was, was Denson. Um, his, his story is a little bit tragic because he was, outed un uh, unintentionally and it was certainly talked about this was in 2016 um it was certainly talked about and i got to actually go we played against each other in wisconsin and we got i got to go to dinner at his host family's house and uh, we were talking a little bit about it and this was right after it had happened and i just i can only imagine the the narrative in the back of your mind going, well, if that guy on the mound hates me for who I am, there's nothing to stop him from throwing at my head. And in, in the context of the game, somebody throwing at someone's head, you can just say the ball slipped out. 
But to have that, even 1% of that thought in your mind, taking away from your ability to focus on hitting a baseball, um, I can't even imagine what, what trying to balance that was like because I struggled to even focus on pitching after the June Lee article came out in July um, because it felt like there was so much stuff going on outside the field and internally with myself that focusing on the game felt difficult for the first time. And, in if, and if you're even slightly off pitching, <laughs> it's over. Yeah, it, baseball takes no prisoners. Um, I think one of my... As a Mets fan, I've learned that the hard way. I think one of my first outings after that article came up, um, I got, it was against Birmingham. I got one out. It got Romy, Romy, uh, is it Gonzalez? Ripped about a shortstop. We got the out. Then they scored seven consecutive runs. And then I got the other out. It was brutal to go through, but I didn't feel like I was pitching poorly. I just felt like I was getting beat. Some days and, you just get beat. And, and if you just, you know, if I've been expending all this energy off the field and my focus is elsewhere, and now I'm trying to pitch with good intent, but I just don't have the energy to do it, sometimes you just don't have that edge that you need to play the game. Um, it's, you know, it's why I focus on mental health so much in the game. Um, you know, my four pillars that I talk to my high school guys about sleep, hydration, nutrition, and mental health. If you're not covering those four things, a lot of the work that you do is kind of all for naught. Um, and I just I continually tell them those four things and say, hey, if there is something going on off the field, feel free to talk to me about it. You don't have to, but I'm here to listen because I know how difficult it is to play the game when you're worried about something off the field. You're absolutely right. You can't do anything in life if there are other things in life that are holding you back. It's just not possible. It's like I was doing job things this summer, and there was a bunch of stuff going on mentally and stuff in family that I just I couldn't focus on it, and I wasn't doing a good job of it, and these things mattered. And that makes life so much tougher. And yeah. It, it's something that I think, it again, sounds so obvious when you think about it, but it hasn't been obvious for a very long time, and it still isn't obvious in many ways in sports. Yeah, I, I do think that there's a lot of the, um, the old thought processes are going to start to dissolve pretty quickly. Um, the they ability, have to, otherwise you're not going to survive. The ability to disseminate information has become so easy. Um, now, granted, whether people believe that information is up to them and I, whatever, I have my thoughts on that, but to get good, true information across the globe takes a millisecond now. And the more and more people that start to see this and realize that some of the narratives that they've been fed their whole life may not be, may not be as rock solid as the, um, as the imaginary foundation upon which they rest, is um and I, like i said i think we'll start to see that paradigm shift i think we'll start to see a large number of people think a little bit differently um i i genuinely try to stay optimistic that it's going to be a positive change um you know i will do all i can to try and contribute to that positivity but um i just I suppose I remain more optimistic than some. 
I mean, there are there because if you're negative, then how can you do your job to make a thing better if you're always going to be negative about it? Like I joke about the neg because the way to get your negative emotions out to me yeah. is is joking about it and making the like I make jokes about hockey all the time and hockey's going through some true crap right now. It is some of its skeletons are getting released and it's the same thing with baseball. You can be extremely negative about it, but I like to do it in a joking way because I think it's healthier than to just be, than to just be deeply cynical about it all the time. Because if you're deeply cynical, then how are you going to actually do the work you need to do to get the thing to be better? You have to have a certain level of optimism, right? Because if yeah, you're cynical, I, then you're going to go in the end, and if it doesn't work, you're going to go, all right, they suck anyway. You know? I wasn't expecting I think, change. And I think people are drawn to optimism, and I, I really do think that optimism can galvanize people to believe a little bit more. Um, that's really, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm kind of sounding, I feel like I'm going all Ted Lasso here, but. Oh no. It's so good. <laughs> it's, it's based on a commercial. It's brilliant though. It's based on a commercial. I will. Now they did make fun of West Ham United. That was good. And I will always appreciate <laughs> them totally dunking on that awful waste of blood and organs. But beyond that, it was based on a commercial. And maybe and, again, and I might be, I might be just wired in a certain way that that show does not connect with me, and that's probably the truth. Something but, about the style of, you know, you can call it coaching, but it's that positive. It's that almost unbreakable positivity and support. So, especially for my high school athletes, I don't know what their lives are like at home. I don't know what their parents are like. I don't know what sort of support they receive. So the only thing I can do is to give them everything I have, the knowledge that I have um, and the, the positivity and support for their, for their work. If these guys are buying in and doing the work and really, really genuinely trying to get better, I want to make sure that they are being appreciated for it. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I'm not saying that people are bad for liking Ted Lasso. I'm just saying here's probably why I'm not the person for this show. Yeah. And again, I remember Ted Lasso being a commercial. And I cannot get over the fact that it's basically like that old ABC Geico caveman show, which was oh, terrible. Yeah. And I remember it existed. And again, the, maybe it's just the deeply cynical part of me. And I have to admit, that's who I am. And I make fun of these things. But I can't get over the fact that this show is based on a commercial. I just can't. That's like, fair. All I the mean, good that's on about it, it came out of a place this commercial. I just, I can't do it. And like for some people, they might be able to disassociate. I can't do that. That's yeah, I just, think, well, one, I, I've forgotten that it was from a commercial, but I, am I had a teammates telling me about it all year. I remember vividly watching those commercials. It was how NBC sold that they got the Premier League was this, and the whole thing took place at Tottenham, the club I like. So I definitely remember it, and I also that Tottenham season was terrible. So I very vividly remember it. And it just, like, it's something I couldn't get out of my head. And I, I have friends that like it, and it's fine. I'm not saying you're bad for liking it. It's just not a thing that's going to associate with me. And as long as you admit that, I always say I make statements definitive to me and me only. Yeah. Beyond that, you can do with it what you want. Uh, as we wrap this up, because it is now getting on to two hours. I mean, I've very rarely done podcasts. Last Third of the long. way there. Third of the way there. We could keep going, but I am recording this of the day when the U.S. men are playing Jamaica in a World Cup qualifier, and I kind of have to watch that. So I will make sure that you get to that. Well, I have to have to edit this show too, which will take time. Yeah. It's two hours, but that's fine. I don't. June, June actually what? had to June had to deal with six hours of conversation to edit oh, down. Oh well, article. the good news is the good news is with him is I'm assuming 
because he's a good journalist, he used software that transcribes this stuff for you. Yes, and he also had a team of editors that helped. And like and Sam, also, Sam had, I think Sam had like almost seven and a half hours of well, recorded conversation. Well, yeah, because that's how these things work if you're doing long form. People don't understand how long it takes to make those stories work. It's yeah. hard. You have it to you easy. have to dilute me, so much information down into something uh, cohesive that makes sense. And, it, it, and a word count usually. Yeah. Although at the athletic, it might not be a word count, but in some places you have a word count. But anyway. I, I will ask you a couple things. Firstly, is the question about the new CBA and what you think baseball is going to look like, no matter how nasty this couple months might be, and it's going to be nasty. What has you the most hope for baseball in terms of structural change to make this sport from the bottom on up better or top down? But what gives you the most optimism in this negotiation that these things can actually change and get better? Um, I think there is a enormous amount of data supporting the fact that happier, better, happier players with better nutrition that have less stress play better. Um, and I think, it, you know, there's also a ton of data to support that all of those things lead to better individual human beings. Uh, this is, once again, a sport based on uh, statistics. So if I were to present this information that says, hey, investing $5 million in your minor league system would, you know, immensely benefit a large portion of your players and therefore make your organization better without you really having to do anything other than that. That should be a no brainer for these teams to say, oh, well, maybe we should make our minor leagues better so that we can have better trade stock and, you know, maybe win a few more games in our minor league system. The Rays won everything except for double a they won every championship except for double a and they missed that by one game in a five game playoff they are clearly doing something better because they're investing their money in the right spaces um necessity you know, is sometimes listen even if it comes from the fact that they don't have the money on the top end because you know they play in a turkey and their owner doesn't really think the market can support or whatever he won't pay for a stadium necessity in this case is still the mother of invention like it is survival instincts it is evolution, yep. and that's why the Rays do what they do, and they're really good at it, even if there are issues as to why they do it, why they do it. You know, and sometimes I find that hard to compartmentalize, but hey, sometimes yeah. sometimes I can't complain about doing the right things, even if it comes about in a way I don't agree with. I, I just think presenting the teams with an undeniable fact of, hey, this would make everybody better. And if they choose to say no, then you say, well, now you're actively sandbagging. You're actively choosing to be a worse team. And that's, you know, if you can, to me, if you can put teams on the heel and question them of, well, if you're not going to invest in your players, then why the fuck do you own a team? I mean, really, yep. it, it, I would like, love to sit down in a room with the owners and ask them, why the fuck do you own a team if you're not willing to make their lives better? Well, because I also find it interesting because, like, these people made money outside of baseball. They, or all professional sports, and then they invested it into sports for whatever reason. And, and then they claimed, and then they claimed to lose money during the pandemic, despite the fact that the pandemic made the ultra rich richer. Yeah, I, I know it's. Uh, it, but it's just it's this bullshit narrative that they continue to throw around and say, oh, all, we're losing all money. All so we sports can't owners do this. All of them do this. There's very few teams in sports I actually believe lose money. I know yeah. a couple of them. I actually believe that they lose money, 
And that's through enormous mismanagement. I mean, that's tough uh, to do at times. Yerp. I can give you examples of that, but we don't have to do that here. Um, <laughs> and like, but I also find like, you're not getting into this to make money. You're going to make money regardless. You're in professional sports. It yep. takes an incredible level of mismanagement to screw that up. Like it needs chronic mismanagement dating back years, decades. You're going to make money by just showing up. So why are you in it then? You're, Cause you're going to make money regardless by doing nothing. Why are you in this if you're not going to win? Exactly. We, we talk about these, these are all men, and they're egomaniacal, patriarchal, like, you're in it to win. You're in it to one-up these other rich people. Like, Which that's means how providing you an here, environment apparently. that works for everybody. You know, it doesn't just work for the absolute grinders. Because, you know what, there are guys who get in the minor leagues and thrive because they are straight-up grinders, and I respect those dudes. I am not that much of a grinder. I am pretty soft. Um, hey, that's fine. I, <laughs> but I can still throw a baseball at 100 miles an hour. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, not some people soft, are just have an innate God-given ability or not God-given ability. It's probably the wrong term in this case. Just have an ability to do that. Yeah, and, and like, how- it took hours and hours of training and putting my body through hell and at one point eating 6,000 calories a day. Like, And that was costing me a lot of money because it is not cheap to eat 6,000 no, calories a day. of course not. Yeah, uh, of course not. But, but if I, you know, to, to play to play hypothetical here, if I were ever to have the chance to own a team, every fiber of my being would be dedicated to making sure that the individuals that I employ are given every opportunity to have a good life, not just to be a good baseball player for me, but to make sure that they are taken care of from a mental health standpoint if they're dealing with something that is causing them distress, to make sure that their nutrition is taken care of and say they're from Latin America and they're used to eating a certain diet, making sure that that food is provided to them so that they don't have to change their natural diet that they've been living on for 16 to 20 years, coming to the States and starting to eat a Western diet, which I've seen really decimate a few players because their bodies don't react to it well. You know, details. Uh, again, like focusing in on the, the end, details. aren't we talking about like, using the Wall Street terms, the market inefficiencies, all these things. The market inefficiency might just be, you know, treating people as people. Yeah. Like, again, funny how that might work. But Humanizing people, people, people and allowing them to have an internal locus of control. Hey, that might win you more baseball games. Isn't that amazing? Right. I, I, again, it sounds so stupid when you say it. And then you say it and you're like, wow, actually, this is the most obvious thing on the planet. But then I walk into Dodgers camp and I ask them, hey, you know, is there any uniform I have to wear out there? And they go, there's no rules. Like, wear what you want. As long as you're not being a dickhead teammate, then do what you want. Put your, you know, do your work. And we trust you to be a professional. It That goes from an external locus of control where you have teams saying, you need to wear this, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this, to an internal locus of control that says, I need to do this, I need to do that because it will make me better, because it'll make the team better, because it'll make the organization better. Once you buy into that, the whole culture of an organization changes and you end up with happier ball players. I was talking to a friend of mine who's in the AFL who's on a team with the Dodgers players and he said to me, they seem so much happier. Like stark difference between the way that they were interacting with each other and other teammates and the way that you know, him and the guys from his team were interacting. It's, it is, it's just not difficult to me anymore to make sense of it. I, 
I just want to present it to others so that it makes as much sense to them as it does to me. Oh, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, again, going back to a discussion we had two hours ago, I follow the New York Mets. Nobody's <laughs> happy when it's the Mets involved. It's very obvious. But uh, let, as we start to wrap this up, I do have to ask about out people in the sport of baseball and what you think this sport can do, what, not just what you can do from your small purse, but what the sport can do to make this better. I don't know what you think of Pride Nights. I know some people who hate them because it doesn't actually change the, the structures. It's just superficial. It's a great way to but, sell, you know, special jerseys. Oh, no, no, no. It's a great way to give <laughs> out stuff. But it's like Rainbow Star Wars night in many ways because it doesn't actually do anything. Yeah, like we're not that. actually. It, I mean, I, saw, I can understand why some people like it and why it helps some people. You know, why it would mean something if a team in Huntsville, Alabama is doing it. But yeah. The point, the point being, like, there still has to be more done. And, and in terms of out people in baseball, what would you like to see done to make it better so that, you know, whether we see public comings out or not, like, these people can live the lives they want to live because if they're stuck in the closet, they're not going to be good baseball players. Well, I think from my own personal experience, baseball is actually in an okay spot when it comes to accepting uh, out people. You know, at least from my experience, I had overwhelmingly positive interaction with teammates and coaches and personnel um, because I, I do think the game is is changing, not because the game itself is making any changes, but because uh, society at large is becoming more accepting and understanding of people that are different. And I can't say that, you know, I, I wouldn't want them to try and force any changes to over-represent, you know, the LGBTQ community in baseball, because like I said, if, if there's 5,000 players, we're probably talking about 300. Every single one of those 300 is extremely valid in their, their sexuality and who they are. Um, I, I don't know that there's anything that MLB really can do. Um, you know, I'm sure if I sat and I, I thought on it more, I could probably think of something, but, uh, I, I think even just having a voice in the game that says this doesn't affect my baseball <laughs> and it really doesn't um, you know to, to conflate sexuality and, and ability of playing the game I, you know, I, I can't see any reason to do that because I, never once did I stand on the mound and go Oh, I don't think I can throw throw a strike here because I'm bisexual. <laughs> so, I, I don't know that there is much that the MLB can do. Um, I do think that if there are individuals out there who are on the fence about coming out, um, especially those in you know if there are MLB players in the position where they're on the fence about coming out, if there ever was a time to do it, it's now. Um, and, you know, at the very least, I will go to war for whoever does, and I will make sure that they are protected and that they are safe, because there's there's no, there's, there's nothing that should allow for a player to not be protected. There's absolutely nothing, I, you know, outside of legal issues. Um, there's absolutely no reason for a player not to be protected and to feel safe and respected in the sport that he has excelled at to the point where he is in the 0.1% of all baseball players. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I really do encourage those who are on the fence to, um, if it's not to come out publicly, if you haven't come out to anyone before, find someone that you trust, talk to them. Once you start to see the positivity, you know, feedback to you, it becomes a lot easier to, uh, to talk about these issues. It's much easier once you start talking about it and you realize that closeted brain is just you being in the closet and making things far worse on yourself than it actually is. Yeah. Although, I mean, there's always legitimate fear. Like, I understand it because there are some people who will say, if I don't, if I come out, there are going to be people, you know, who are going to prevent me from going to where I want to go. You know, that's closeted brain. And in a lot of cases, people aren't going to do that. But again, closeted brain is a very, very difficult place to be in. And it is impossible for people who have never been in the closet to understand what that's like, you know, and it's, and it's, it's, you have to empathize it. And I, and that's why I was just saying like the more people that do it, the easier it's going to be. Like, exactly. The fact yeah. that you were able to do it and just say my like just saying I'm bisexual publicly, even in a story that's about something bigger than that is extremely important because it gives people out there saying, Hey, I'm not the only one, you know, and Brian doing the same thing. Like, he didn't realize how big of a story it would be. And I say, like, you, nobody can ever tell you that, you know, when you're in the closet that this is going to matter to a lot of people. And said, it does. It just happens when you come out, you notice it. And yeah, it's easy it's, looking back on it. You know, it, it may not come from your particular community. I was just receiving messages um, about, you know, people just thanking me for being able to do it. And I... I you know, to those who, who once again are, are on the fence, when the positive feedback loop starts, you'll realize that there is an enormous, you know, population of really supportive individuals who will be there for you. Uh, you may not know them, but they're there and they absolutely will look out for you because they've been through it. Um, you know, they may they that for one another. Absolutely, um, it is. Despite, you know, some of its internal issues, uh, for, you know, 99% of the people in this community love and respect each other and will and will be there for any member of it if there is, is uh, a need for it. And if, if you haven't experienced that before, if you haven't had the opportunity to experience that sort of um, outpouring of love, it can be pretty spectacular. It is a great feeling when you're able to finally just do it and realize all the things I had thought about, it's not there anymore. And, and living authentically. Uh, if ever there was a recipe for, um, for kind of rekindling your, you know, let's say purpose in life or your, your spark of creation, I would say it's that, to live authentically. Um, to talk about the things that interest you, no matter how weird they may be. You know, that was my change this year was to just be authentic. So I talked to my teammates about mushrooms and animals and, you know, sex and sexuality and the universe and black holes and uh, dark matter and all the other crazy things that I, I really love to learn about. And I was embraced because of my differences. You know, the Latinos called me El Profesor, which I loved. I loved that nickname. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just felt a much deeper connection to my team 
because they knew the real me. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I also think that this is, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. Just the, the ability to live your life better. You know, it's just, it's simple enough. And as long as you're able to be who you are, you'll, you'll win in the end. And as long as you're, as, it's just about finding that happiness to get through this weird thing life as we hurdle on a rock around a star that hurdles around a giant black hole 30,000 times the mass of the sun. It's something like that. Sagittarius, I, I, I watch a lot of space stuff, too, but <laughs> I should remember how big this is because I like, I like all the space stuff. But uh, yeah, like once you see like all the crazy stuff that happens in space, you realize how insignificant all this really yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, there's um, yeah, we're, I'm not, I'm not going to go deep too deeply. Into no, this, we're but, already um, two hours, please. The idea that extraterrestrials are no, yeah, we can't do yeah, that. The next time we'll talk about extraterrestrials contacting us through the consciousness. Oh boy. Uh, oh yeah, it's it's a fun one. Oh yeah, that that will be episode twenty-seven, part two, coming out now. Uh, Kieran, where can people find you? Um, yeah, social media. My Twitter, I think, is Lovegrove19, and my Instagram is Lovegrove38, and I'm going to double-check that now because I... Yep. Um, for those who are interested in the advocacy stuff, advocatesforminorleaguers.com explains a lot of what we do. Um, you can also donate to the cause, get a T-shirt there. You know, it, It's going to an organization that is tirelessly working to improve the conditions for minor leaguers. Especially um, at the time that we're in now. Harry Marino. That fundamentally can change baseball. Harry Marino and company are absolutely putting in, you know, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks to get this stuff done. Um, I owe them a ton because, you know, Harry is the one who originally reached out to me and gave me an opportunity to speak. And so I owe him an enormous debt of gratitude. Um, as for anything else, if you guys do want to listen to my insane ramblings, there's a few podcasts out there that have my insane ramblings. Um, I, I couldn't tell you where to find them, though, unfortunately, because there's been quite a few. Uh, Just, I mean, does this one suffice enough? This is, well, like I said, we're only a third of the way through what we probably could have done. We uh, definitely could have gone more. But as I said, like people, I, I, I think I normally like to keep these around an hour. But uh, yeah, this one won't go in an hour. This one's going to clock in at something like 2.15 when we're done. Yeah. So, I, but space it out. Listen to I, it on multiple car rides. Hey, yeah, take a trip. Well, multiple instances of taking trip. Anyway, again, great pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having on. me on. Part I, two coming eventually. Yeah, I if I'm always up for, for conversation. I really am. Yeah.